sleepwalkers, hiding in human robes, feeding on virtue, loving to feed, feeding to breed. And so in the end, they ran. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Sleepwalkers. Stop looking at me. Stop looking at me, you fucking cat! Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. I ain't taking the rap on this. It's not my fault. Hosted by Arnie. He didn't like Clovis. It, it was like he was scared of. Stuart. It was very charming. And Jacob. They were always driven away because they were such outsiders. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Don't swear, mother. Listener discretion is advised. Tanya, I don't think you're entering into the spirit of this. Why don't you just think of yourself as lunch? Today we're discussing Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, starring Brian Krause, Machen Amick, Alice Krieg, directed by Mick Garris. What's the matter? Cat got your tongue? It's Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. <laughs> and Stuart. And this is Jacob, and I can't wait to talk about this film, because I always wondered, what do you call a furry that wants to dress up like a cat but hates fur? <laughs> Apparently it's a sleepwalker. <laughs> Allergies, you know. You know what? Cat does have my tongue, because normally I come to these things like, wow, I really got things to say. I'd never seen this movie. I turn it on. And I am still trying to process why. You have nothing to say about this movie about incestual vampire cats going after virginal women. I don't know why. Let me, let me just back it up a little. This is a big deal for Stephen King fans. It is one of the few times that he's written something originally for movie audiences. There is no book to this. It is an original screenplay. Well, is he angry at movie audiences? <laughs> See, he always tries to take writing in new directions. You know, he's written audiobook only stuff. He's written ebook only stuff. He so this is his movie only stuff. I mean, he's written bad stuff before too, but he's going back into that well. Well, let's keep in mind he had done some screenplay writing with the anthology films, you know, writing the wraparound story for Cat's Eye and Creep Show and that wonderful Golden Years, a novel for television. Around this time, too. Okay. And in all of those other cases, I could understand why you go, oh, yes, I loved EC Horror Comics. Let's do an homage to that. Oh, yes, a series where someone ages backwards. What would it end up saying about the human condition? Why? Why? What is the pitch for this movie? What do you even say? Like, it's Garfield and Tennessee Williams together at last. Like, I don't know why you would do this. Okay, the simple answer is Pet Cemetery in 89, Misery in 90, people were hungry to make Stephen King movies. You know, they looked over the failures, saw the successes, and based off of just Stephen King's name, Columbia Pictures was like, we're in. And King had written this with nobody asking him to. <laughs> but, okay, what was the source of inspiration? 
Yes, he always does have one that comes from his life. And this one was his son. Did his wife cheat on him with his son? Is that the inspiration? <laughs> no. You know, his his inspiration is often something very simple, like a dog jumped at me, and I wondered what if it had been rabid, and the next thing we have Cujo. Mm-hmm. What if vampires were cat? Let's make sleepwalkers. <laughs> his son, Joe King, who writes under the name Joe Hill now, mm-hmm. had a crush on the popcorn girl in a movie theater. And he kept talking about it and talking about her and how he wanted to ask her out. And King just had this dark thought of what if somebody asked out the popcorn girl for all the wrong reasons? <laughs> that's, that's the pitch. That is the pitch. Where do you go for all the wrong reasons to fucking your mom? <laughs> Where is that bridge? Wow, yeah. If this were only a mere stalking scenario movie, I would kind of understand it. But we... Cats. He had cats in the brain. You know, he that was his entry for Tales from the Dark Side movie that came out around that time, that Buster Poindexter was a detective chasing a cat around an empty mansion <laughs> for a movie. Like, was that... Why cats? Listen, not surprisingly... He hasn't talked a lot about this movie after it came out. He talked a lot about this movie before it came out. What he'd said was he'd worked on Creepshow. He'd worked adapting his own stuff, Silver Bullet, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, he did that screenplay? Mm, okay. Yeah. He'd done a lot of screenwriting. And he decided that he'd learned some stuff about screenwriting over five, six years of doing it. And he wanted to write an original screenplay. And his exact words were, I had a bloody good time doing it. Yeah, he, he tells us everything he knows about screenwriting from Mr. Fallows, the teacher character in here. Your story's got to have a beginning, middle, and end. So it works on that level. There's a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. So we don't know why he went down this path for the rare opportunity to write an original screenplay. But he did it for himself. He wasn't shopping it. Somebody came to him and was like, we need a movie. And he's like, I got a script. Okay. All right. Yes. I get that when you're hot, you're hot. And yeah, with Pet Cemetery having blown up the box office and even Lawnmower Man for all of its legal issues and stupidity was a hit. I mean, I do feel like he was on an upswing when this came out in April 1992. This was filmed in early 91. Took a little while to get out. It, production had really started, you know, around the time of Misery, 1990. Columbia had the script, brought in Rupert Rainwright to direct. Rupert Rainwright, who I think the movie of his people like best is Stigmata, Patricia Arquette's film. I hate him for the remake of The Fog. <laughs> mm, I don't know this director, and I didn't like that Fog remake and didn't see Stigmata. So he was an aspiring horror director. Yeah. He'd gotten the script and was starting to see some problems with the script and did some rewrites. And King was like, uh-uh, I have final approval. This guy is out. You know who I want. I loved Psycho 4. <laughs> so let's get Mick Garris. I'm flying to New York to meet with the director of Psycho 4 so we can get this guy to do my work. Yeah. And you mentioned this last week. But Mick Garris, who goes on to do six Stephen King adaptations, he becomes his bitch. Um, he <laughs> probably most successfully with the Stan TV miniseries, the original ABC one. Okay, so none, none of them are good. The most egregious one is that Shining remake, 
we I don't know. There's some ones we haven't seen yet that I barely even know what they are, but we'll get to them eventually. Bag of Bones is one, and I know I've seen Desperation where he reteams with Ron Perlman from this to do more King. Yeah, I don't know those books. I don't know those movies. Like there's a period of King that it just becomes this desert, and I don't know what what is in store for me once I cross into that realm. But he was the director of Critters Two, Psycho Four, and he wrote The Fly Two. When he's brought in for a meeting with Stephen King and presumably he says, I'll do whatever you want in any position you like, right? Like that's, this is where <laughs> his backbending, like my idea of directing is to agree with Stephen King on any of his and all of his worst ideas. What he said at the time is, quote, Stephen would always agree to changes, which I thought would improve the script. Although I volunteered to make the changes, he'd say, nah, let me take a stab at it. And the next day there would be this wonderful scene sitting in the fax machine. So King would take suggestions, but every word was King. He Mm -hmm. was not letting go of the writer's reins on this one. Right. He had a lot of control over the production, though I don't get the feeling that he was there all that much. He was keeping an eye from afar. And, you know, when this came out, he was asked, did your screenplay get translated well to the screen? Because we know he's had some problems with how the final film ended up. And he's like, well, if an A is 92 to 100%, if a B is 84 to 91, he'd give Sleepwalkers a B+. Hmm. So an A in modern grading. <laughs> so in 1992, yes, Sleepwalkers came out. I was in the height of King fandom, as Stuart mentioned last week. This may have been my apex when I was, I don't know, I've had a few King apexes. But it was definitely one of the peaks before the valleys. And I was at Sleepwalkers because I'm like, I can't read it as a book. I wasn't thinking it through to I can see it on video. The only way I could experience the Stephen King story is in theaters. I remember the theater I went to. I strangely remember the seat I was at, and I did see it twice in theaters. Twice. Am I wrong? Were you not, did you not have a shirt for this one too? Like next to your Lawnmower Man shirt? I remember a Slate Walker shirt. Yeah, Cybersex and MILF. Here's the tale. No pun intended. One day, I get home from school, and I have an envelope from a mysterious company, and I open it up. And it's a Stephen King Sleepwalker shirt. Mm, Okay, it just showed up on your door. You didn't spend hundreds of dollars to acquire it. It says, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue? Which is not a line from the movie. And then it had the Sleepwalkers logo. There was no cyber sex. There was no mating cats. It's just, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue. Sleepwalkers. And so I'm like, where did this shirt come from? I started looking up the company and there was no internet. I couldn't Google them. So I had to like go to phone books and libraries to find this company to find out why they sent me this shirt. Did you ever find out? (laughs) Yes, I did. In 1992, MTV still played music videos. Mm -hmm. For our Gen Z listeners, MTV used to be known as music television. (laughs) Now it's like reality television. But there was another channel that would show music videos. And I don't know if either of you remembered this, but this was a video jukebox. Oh, the box. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know this one. You could call a 900 number and pay like three bucks Mm -hmm. and then pick 
a video to be played. And for reasons that I'll never quite fully understand, I would have this channel on a lot. <laughs> I mean, mostly the videos that were played, this was 1992, were videos you couldn't see on MTV. So I saw a lot of Pop That Coochie and a lot of Short Short Man. That's what people <laughs> wanted to pay $3 for. Mm -hmm. And then around the same time, Faith No More's Angel Dust album came out, and those videos weren't getting a lot of play on MTV. And so I actually called and had my VCR set up, and I played each Faith No More video and never told my mom, hey, check out for this phone bill. <laughs> and I'd record them so I'd have them on VHS. I had all my Faith No More videos. It turned out, at the time that I was requesting those videos and paying my 12 bucks, there was a contest being run for everyone who dialed in, and, like, the number one prize was to be flown to L.A. and something or other, and I wound up with, like, the seventh place prize where a thousand people or a hundred people or some number of people were sent a Stephen King Sleepwalkers t-shirt. Wow, yeah, we had this shit lying around. <laughs> Okay, so it's just a coincidence. It could have been any shirt. It could have been from any movie, but just as fortune would have it, it wasn't. Because again, I thought you had run out there and bought it. Like I thought you loved this movie. No, but I will admit, I wasn't. I'm still not too discerning about what shirts I wear. I subscribe to Loot Crate. If they send me a free shirt, I'm fucking wearing it. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, I wore that shirt right next to my Lawnmower Man one. I was a Stephen King fan. So sure, Cat Got Your Tongue was on my chest about 20% of the time I left the house. But why twice in theaters? The second time was to make sure, I guess, <laughs> about the first time. Strangely, I think I went with a friend the second time. And Stuart, I could have sworn that friend was you, but you haven't mm -mm. seen it. So mm -mm. now I don't know who I went with. You wanted to make sure it wasn't a fever dream that you had witnessed. That, and I think I went with a friend. And I can't remember which friend then. I had several. I mean, Stuart wasn't my only friend. <laughs> yeah. Stuart was actually not much of a friend after you told him Lawnmower Man was the film. That was the one we went to. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, I'm never taking your advice on Stephen King again. That's the thing is I didn't know how I could have gotten you to see this mm -mm. after Lawnmower Man. I'm like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. This is your fault, Stuart. Well, I was still a big Twin Peaker. So the fact that Shelly is in this probably was like maybe a slight pull. But yeah, you who love Lawnmower Man came back less uh, fusive for this one. And I was like, okay, I know it's shit. So <laughs> yeah, and this was early 1992, April 1992. Yeah, so we were still in high school, both of us, when this came out. It was getting a head start on that summer's movies. You know, it ended up being number one at the box office. It was a mild hit. Yeah, I mean, for horror movies, th doing 30 million, you don't do much better than that in that era. But the 90s was not really a time for horror movies. It's kind of surprising that this didn't generate a lot of straight-to-tape sequels, frankly. I mean, if they did it for Children of the Corn and Leprechaun, why don't we have nine more Sleepwalker movies? I, I'm grateful. Are you baffled that it, there's not more copycats? Oh, uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. But no, I mean, yeah, like, is it because King owns the rights and he wouldn't he wouldn't have anyone bastardize this by making a part two without <laughs> he his... He already did! Yeah, I know, right? But it just feels like, yeah, this is the start to a sub-franchise, like Leprechaun. Like, it just... Because it was this kind of hit... I'm grateful to one-off, but also surprised that there's not any more story to tell. Oh, there's more. 
and we will discuss the proposed sequel at the end of the show. Okay. But I do think the fact that we've talked about cinema score, audiences are an easy lay. Cinema score is like walking out of the premiere day, asking people in LA, what did you think? And if you have an A minus, that's a bad sign. Mm, yeah. This one got a C plus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, C, C plus means they hated it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of any movie that's gotten a cinema score of an F. If there is one, listeners, please let me know. But a C plus is one of the lowest I've ever heard. So audiences didn't like it. Critics savaged it. King hasn't spoken of it. I feel like he's a little embarrassed by it. I can't imagine why. I'm not even sure where in the periods of addiction and sobriety this was written. I'm tending to think in the latter stages of addiction around the time of Tommyknockers. Yeah. He must have been listening to a lot of Santo and Johnny because it was literally the song that is played in this movie (laughs) that gave him the title and the idea. Okay. That plus his son going after the girl who served popcorn at the theater. Wait, wait, he listens to a song from 1959. Great song. I like it. Mm -hmm. And thinks of incestuous vampire cats. Arnie, give him the plot. We just got to get into this. Two newcomers have moved to Travis, Indiana. High school student Charles Brady, played by Brian Krause, and his mother Mary, played by Alice Krieg. These two have moved town to town because they are sleepwalkers. No, not nocturnal wanderers, but shape-shifting cat creatures that live by sucking the souls from virgins. Only the women, though. Charles and Mary are hundreds of years old, and lovers, as well as mother and son. The way it works is Charles eats the souls of virgins, then passes the sustenance onto his mother through sex. (laughs) They've come to Travis to feed on high school senior Tanya, played by Megan Amick, and she is crushing hard on the blonde new kid in school, despite the fact he looks 30. (laughs) Charles takes Tanya on a date in the local graveyard, where he attacks her, but she manages to escape to the road where a cop is waiting. The cop's cat, Clovis, (laughs) attacks and mortally wounds Charles, so Charles races home to the loving arms of his mother. Let's just pause on that moment. The cop has a partner, and it's a cat named Clovis. What, you got a problem with Enos from Dukes of Hazzard? They got a lot of problems. They got 99 problems. Come on, Flash was like my favorite character in Dukes of Hazzard. (laughs) (laughs) So Mary tends to Charles's wounds as best she can, but the only way to heal him is with Tanya's life essence. Mary goes to Tanya's house where she kills several cops and Tanya's parents. She kidnaps Tanya and takes her to Charles. But Clovis is on the case. The feline breaks a window and gets into the Brady house. It goes down and attacks Mary, allowing Tanya to kill Charles and escape. And Mary dies from cat scratch fever as credits roll. Hmm. Yeah. And just to let you know how indelicate this is all going to be, like we start literally with an inner title just explaining, look, we can't explain why. Just believe us that somewhere... Stuart, this movie is like 89 minutes. They ain't wasted any time explaining the lore. Just read the fucking dictionary definition. Yeah, nomadic shape-shifting creatures with human and feline origins, sleepwalker. Vulnerable to the deadly scratch of the cat. They're cats, but cats are also their enemy. I don't understand it. Mm. I don't either, but 
these here, these lines, vulnerable to the scratch of a cat, the sleepwalker feeds upon the life force of virginal human females. I don't know how that's different virginal. I mean, do they just have to look like virgins? Do they have to be virgins? <laughs> when Madonna's singing like a virgin, does she count? Yeah, these are the source of the vampire legend. Forget <laughs> everything you know about vampires, it's sleepwalkers. But these are the only words Mick Garris got to write for this film, because test audiences, what's a sleepwalker? Why is this movie called Sleepwalkers? I still don't know what a sleepwalker is. Why are they sleepwalkers? So this quote from the, how would you pronounce that? Chillicoth Encyclopedia of Arcane Knowledge? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I wrote it down. I don't know how to say it, though. <laughs> this was added on to explain it, followed by a Freddy Krueger scratch of four claws that go through the screen. You can tell what movie they're hoping to make you think of, Nightmare on Elm Street. And then we get, like, a prologue. And why? Why is Luke Skywalker here in Bodega Bay? You know, this is my first time knowing Mark Hamill was in this film. He's uncredited, <laughs> and in theaters, I didn't recognize him. What? You're kidding me. He had that mustache, and he didn't talk much. No, I never recognized him. I recognized Clyde Barker, Stephen King, several of the other people we're going to talk about. I never recognized that this was Luke Skywalker. Yeah, he's standing in front of a beach house where cats are not just dead, but they've been, like, hung by leashes. Like, it's like a Christmas tree of dead cats on the Southern California coast. And they're, I think, investigating whether the owners were murdered. They want to make sure that it, the killing ended with cats. Yeah, this was also a added scene when audiences were like, what are the sleepwalkers trying to do? What's the end goal? So... Garris called up Mark Hamill and was like, come on down. Apparently, he also called up, like, I don't know who, but these a lot of these dead cats were real dead decaying cats, according to Garris. So what are we to learn from this scene? Yeah, because all I caught, I caught something about a blue car, and so I'm like, okay, I guess that's going to come up later, and some people are missing, but this never comes back. It's to show... You know, the rose in the hair, the desiccated corpse that apparently weighs nothing because these two cops have zero effort in flipping it over. It's to tell you what will happen to Tanya if they get away with it and to add some more gore. A lot of this movie got decimated by the MPAA. Worth reiterating something we've said on many shows of horror movies in the early 90s. The MPAA really had to stick up its ass around this time about violence. A lot of this movie had to have scenes cut, not just frames cut. And so I also think they might have needed to pad this thing out a little bit. Okay. So yes, basically they're telling you what sleepwalkers do when they finish with a place. They trash the house with dead cat bodies and they leave a virgin turned into a shriveled skeleton. And this virgin they find was obviously young I mean, I'm assuming young because she has braces. They call out that it's a little girl. Yeah, so they don't have to pick high school virgins, really. I mean, Yeah, no, get the little kids. They're easier. Yeah. Maybe they don't have as much life force, though. I mean, I'm just going back to the punchline of Monster Squad. Yes. Where they needed a virgin to read the thing, and then they're like, how about this three-year-old girl? She's a virgin. So not to be crude, but they could have hung around some middle schools or something instead of going for Magic Amic. Yeah, but this movie is going to play upon the vampire lore, and sexuality is a big part of the way that they get their essence 
I don't think anyone would be comfortable seeing prepubescent girls targeted by this star of Return of Blue Lagoon, Brian Krause. <laughs> I'm not saying they should in this movie. I'm just trying to point out the logical fallacies of cat people who are only going after 18-year-olds. And then to really sell it, we didn't have a credit sequence that, like, literally pages from books of Catman sucking purple out of a woman's mouth. <laughs> First of all, it's a black and white book, yet there's purple lines. My favorite is the cat woman breastfeeding a human baby because the cat has tits or the photoshopped cheetah woman loving some dude <laughs> oh so bad mm -mm, mm -mm. yeah i wish we got that in the movie yeah it's making me have more respect for halle berry's cat woman like that is more convincing <laughs> oh. <laughs> than what they have just set up as the premise for this film which again Stephen King, you could write about anything. Like, did he lose a bet? Did, was this like, <laughs> I, like, did he not like McGarris? Was he trying to like, challenge him? Oh, you think you're a director? Can you pull this off? Like, why would anyone with, that has a, a, a good reputation in the horror genre go down this obvious dead end? Well, not all of this was intended. Some of the outfits didn't quite work out. But yes, I mean, you see from this opening, these are to be cat people. I mean, Cat People was a successful movie in the early 80s, kind of a horror film. So I actually, for this review, after I saw this movie, I went and found the 1942 movie to see if it was in any way some kind of inspiration or they were playing off of it. And no, I'll give it a recommend. It's it's an enjoyable, like Van Luton movie, kind of uh, silly, campy, but... For one thing, the romance in the film, the woman that is the cat person doesn't quite know it. And here, it's very clear that these two know that they're evil, get off on being evil, and are really into mom-on-son sex. Yeah, it's bizarre because Charles is introduced, like, carving this tea into his arm for Tanya. And in the yearbook, which... I don't know, he got for some reason, even though he just joined the school, like, he's got the heart around her. I'm like, is this how he marks his targets? Because I would have thought, oh, they've already met and everything, but no, he's, like, just getting ready to strike on her. Here's a disconnect that I realized when watching this movie, and the more I researched after watching this movie, the more I can't really find an answer, but what I think the movie is trying to say here is that... Out of all of the women he's ever fed upon, he's actually falling in love with Tanya. We're supposed to get that he's conflicted about Tanya because he actually likes this one. That does not come across in this movie. <laughs> really? I thought I got it. How would he have gotten to know? They've just become fugitives in California, and now they're in Indiana and in a remote country home why is he going to be in high school? How does he get admitted? Like, they just skip over all of it. They talk about his transcripts. He faked transcripts. Good fakes. I'm aware that they will tell us later. I'm saying it's really strange that we're just jumping into this moment with nothing set up. And it seems like a bad plan. Like, if all they need is virgin, like, juice, why go through all of this? It does seem bad. And here's one of my big problems with this movie. I do think... Because remember, the scene of him carving the tea into his arm was supposed to be the opening scene. When they were showing it to test audiences, there was no Mark Hamill, there was no text. You just got introduced to him looking at the yearbook, right? And you're supposed to think he's your all-American teen, and you're going to find out later he's evil. But what I needed 
for these sleepwalkers was to see a success. I needed to find them dangerous. I needed to see them feed on somebody. I mean, in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy only kills three people. But it was that first death of Tina that let me know, okay, this guy is something to be afraid of. In this entire movie, the sleepwalkers have zero successes. Well, they have an off-screen one that started the movie. Right. I think they needed an on-screen one. But do they have to move every time they kill one person? This seems very inefficient. Yeah, well, it says in that text they're nomadic shape-shifting creatures. So they obviously go town to town feeding on a single virginal person. And no wonder they're almost extinct. (laughs) I just needed some more sleepwalkers. Because here's my other question that I had watching the film. Charles Brady. Obviously, King is making a poke at the Brady Bunch here. We got the Bradys. Yeah, a wholesome family. That's how I took it. Yep. But Charles, he's our main character, right? He's our protagonist. He is the one who has an obstacle to overcome. I think it's Tanya, actually. No. Is it? Because Tanya has nothing to overcome. Charles's mother is dying. She is starving to death. He has to overcome and get her the sustenance she needs that he can only give to her with his dick after feeding on a virgin. So he is our protagonist. Are we to like them? Yeah. Going back to cat people, that was the same situation of you had this mysterious, alluring other person who meets the straight person and they have a romance It's sort of a Beauty and the Beast thing for a while. It's okay if he ultimately becomes the villain, but I do think you're right. We should, on some level, think that this guy is cursed by having to do this and have some sympathy and want him, in Romeo and Juliet style, to make it with a human being and get away from his mother's control. And I feel like they're almost maybe kind of pulling that off. Like, look, this film's going to go real gonzo by the end of it, but to do this kind of gothic, very taboo romance thing, the last of their species, like, I could get into that, but it's not that great. Like, right right off the bat, like, King does not know how to handle that. Garris here doesn't know how to film it, and it's going to go real crazy by the end of it and lose any vibe that it might have to, like, gothic horror at all. Yeah, we know he's sleeping with her mother. If this were the first scene, we would, <laughs> we would know it right away. That would be a huge turnoff. I mean, I feel like that's something you want to save and work people towards that. Yeah, that's a big reveal. Yeah, you don't, like, drop that as the opening scene. That was my thing, is... I came back remembering quite a bit about this movie. I mean, I haven't seen it since theaters, I don't think. Maybe once on video. But I remembered quite a bit. And what I wondered was, are they going to maybe hide it? Are they going to maybe make us not know their mother and son? Or are they going to make us not know they sleep together? But no, he's going to call her mom, say, oh, mother, they tongue kiss. He carries her upstairs. And then we see, it's like this movie is to purple what Tommy Knockers is to green. So as they have sex, the bright purple light shines through the window. Right. I feel like you would be on better footing if like we started with just like a woman moving into the new house, taking down the realtor sign, and then being unnerved that there's a cat on her lawn. Just start with that for a while. What does that mean? Like, tease your mysteries. The fact that they gave it all away with the opening inner title and then, like, that Mark Hamill scene, and now we're seeing, like, mom and son sex. 
I really, like, where else is there for this movie to go? It already started at 11. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a relief that we go to this wholesome romance with the popcorn girl. Like, thank God we get to that. So she's a high school senior in 1992 working at a movie theater. She's vacuuming this empty theater. It's the Arrow, by the way, in Santa Monica. I used to go to that theater. Yeah, I know. I recognize that. Yeah. They're showing They Bite and Scream Dreams. So that tells me what movies they're going after. Dracula meets Freddy. Yeah. But she is dancing around in 1992, not to Nirvana, not to Right Said Fred, <laughs> not to Pop That Coochie, but to Do You Love Me by The Contours. Yeah, this is how we know Stephen King wrote it, because, like, yes, only he is still jamming on that. All 50s doo-wop. Yeah, yeah. please, give me that 1950s vibe here for the teenage girl. And I feel like they padded this dance scene out. Like, again, this is like an 89-minute <laughs> film. And this dance scene, it, it doesn't matter that she can dance, but they go for a while. Oh, my God. I thought the same thing, Jacob. But then I'm listening to the commentary that was just recorded like two years ago for a Shout Factory Blu-ray. And McGarris and Madchen are talking about how Mick was like, I'd never done a dance scene before. And Gary Cooper with vacuum. And oh, my God, I really want to do this. I was going to do it all in one take. But I thought to make the dancing look best, we'll go ahead and do multiple cuts. Like he was all about this dance scene. He really thought this was going to be like Audrey's dance, that kind of moment, which which serves a purpose in Twin Peaks. Like, this is just, I don't know, she dances. She's a bad employee, fire her. And we end up with the meat cute being he scares the shit out of her and popcorn falls on her head. All right, so help me out with the Trans Am. Because one of the real, like, <laughs> I just don't know. Like, I understand that some cat people pretend to be humans to get virgins, sort of, kind of, but vaguely. I get that. But why does he have a blue Trans Am that sometimes becomes a red Mustang? They have mind powers. They, they go full Wonder Woman and can make it invisible. I actually think Patty Jenkins watched this movie and was like, that's how we do it for Wonder Woman 2. He asked this girl, like he's like offering to take this girl home. We find out the car is parked back at his country house. He doesn't even have it there. He's, he walks home. And then the, throughout this movie, the car is going to shift between two different styles in the most incriminating ways. Like when the cop that's looking for the blue Trans Am, the car makes sure to turn into the blue Trans Am so that he will be able to find the guy. Like, it makes no sense to me. I took that as Charles, like, losing concentration because he's so infatuated with Tanya at that moment. Ding, ding, ding. Point Jacob. I was also confused because I'm like, he can just have any car he wants. What is going on here? Mick Garris explained to Madchen and Krauss on the commentary. I mean, the actors were there going, why did the car turn blue mm, again? Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> And it was that he lost concentration. He was too infatuated with Tanya that he lost concentration. So that car is a blue Trans Am, period. Okay. But they have this power to go dim, is what they call it. And Oh, they go real dim. Yep. <laughs> I will add, that is the same power held by the man in black in the Dark Tower series. Okay. It's kind of the opposite of Shining. If Shining is bright, this is dim. <laughs> and so they can cause illusions, be it themselves invisible, cars invisible, or the car looks like a different car. So it was all, it is a blue Trans Am, but he makes it look like a red car after a stupid car chase. 
Okay, so are they really cats walking around upright and he's pretending to look like a blonde surfer dude? Yes. Like that's all concentration? Yes, because later on, Tanya's going to go to their house and we see a shot in a mirror that they, in mirrors, look like these mutated fat cats. Oh, I thought she looked like that because she was losing her powers because she had to feed. No, that's just their true form. Well, I got that, but I thought she couldn't disguise herself anymore in the mirror. And they mentioned vampires, so I just thought that they were playing some, you know, riff on vampires can't see the reflection. Here, you see the cat reflection. Exactly. And so we get this, and, you know, Tanya's way into him, though. Like, from the very beginning, just way into him. There's no conquest here. The only thing they have to overcome is the blackmailing gay literature teacher played by Ortho from Beetlejuice. (laughs) I thought it was Mr. Phallus, but it's Mr. Fallows. It's a creative writing class. The new student already has written a story about his life in which he describes himself as sleepwalkers running from the law. And so that maybe is the reason why the teacher is like going to investigate his background. He's like, you didn't just come up with that. This guy is an interloper. But I think he's really just mad because he explained a box had four sides and this kid embarrassed him by saying, no, it has six. Actually, you could go both ways because a box could have four sides and a top and a bottom, right? I mean... Yeah, I'm not going to get into the box debate. I really don't think it's that big a deal. But they make it seem like the moment that the teacher has his break and says, I'm going to expose this kid. I'm going to go and look at his permanent record and see what he's really doing here. I mean, it's most teachers I know don't really give a shit the way that this guy does. They're really, I think, trying to maybe ape Heathers because they have him like mugging into the camera some jock who's very artistic, draws a picture of two people humping in a car at the graveyard. I was so confused because we're going to end up in a graveyard because, guys, a big part of this plot is doing rubbings on headstones. It's bizarre, but, like, a lot of cemetery stuff here. But, yeah, who is he drawing, like, fucking in this car? Who was that targeted at? Why is this a scene? I think it's the makeout point. Yeah, that's exactly how I took it is he's drawing him and Tanya at Homeland, and that's just where the teenagers go to get laid is the graveyard. Right. Yeah, we're expected to believe that that is... A makeout point. You get busy by the headstones. I mean, Charles does talking about how he does rub too hard with his number five stick when he's doing these etchings of the headstones. It's very sexual. It probably is what kids did in the 1950s when there wasn't entertainment in their small town devoted to them. But like Boyd is king out of touch, right? He has children probably of this age. Apparently this was inspired by one of his children. So why doesn't he understand that teenagers don't jump around to do you love me and make out in graveyards and care about, like, 1950s convertibles and all. Like, I just... All of this feels very, very much like a man that refuses to face the trends of the time. And so much of his writing, he has said, is through the eyes of his children. Charlie from Firestarter is because he had young kids that age. He was writing about people that age. His son was in high school wanting to go out with the popcorn girl, and yet this is how King and Garrus see it? And unfortunately, in the high school, we see Tanya has two friends with a lot of personality who we never see again. I'm like, these characters need to be around more. We need more high school in this 
No, they just have one scene where they make a blowjob joke saying Tanya is going to go down on this guy, even though Tanya is a virgin and has never done anything like this. And then they disappear. Well, it, d- it depends. Do vampire cats consider blowjob sex? <laughs> it depends on what your definition of is is, Jacob. <laughs> So I think we can all agree, we've all seen a lot of rotten horror movies, and we would all know by this point this is among them. No worse than many, but obviously very terrible and will never get any better. I feel confident. All right, I'm going to completely disagree. At this point, I'm kind of into the vibe. It is not realistic. It is not a depiction of the high school, which I was attending in 1992. But at this moment in the movie, I like these two characters, I was a big Twin Peaks fan, so I'm very happy to see Amick here. And this other guy, I don't really know, but he's affable. And I'm wanting to see where it goes. I am not feeling I'm in a horrible film yet. You're invested in the story because I'm like fascinated because I'm like, oh, this is going to start with incest between cat people. Like, where's it going to go? Like, I want to see this train wreck, but I'm not invested in the story at all. No, no, I'm not invested. But Stuart said we've all seen bad horror movies and we know this is one. I don't think this is terrible yet. I didn't say terrible. I said bad. And it is bad. And you know it's bad. (laughs) I don't even think it's in the bad side yet. But you would agree this is stupid as hell at this point. Vampire cats sucking virgins and going town to town is stupid. Well, the way it's been depicted so far... It's not until you see it that the stupidity really smacks you upside the head. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, from the cats dangling in front of Mark Hamill, it's been really stupid. I didn't believe this would be controversial. I can't believe I'm having to make the case for how (laughs) stupid this movie is. My point is, why is a respected best-selling author making and putting out something that is so first-drafty and amateur? Like, this is so bad. I would never suspect that someone that had written so many books would be so bad at the screenplay format. But this is horrendous. Let's just face it. He has rewrites when he goes to the screen. And in book form, you can do more because it's your imagination and you're focusing on the things that stick out to you as the reader. But when he goes directly to the screen, maximum overdrive, it has never been pretty. It has never been pretty when somebody doesn't give him a rewrite before a movie. And this is the situation. And so I'm feeling this is scattered. I'm feeling this is a little rushed, but I'm not feeling... Right now, it is above half to three quarters of the Friday the 13th in their first 30 minutes. Which are all terrible films. We're talking about what is good, and we can recognize it's not good. Now, you may enjoy it. I'm not giving a qualitative, do I like it or not? I'm just saying, I wouldn't expect a man that is considered a master of horror to be putting out such schlocky, this is the first creative writing class I've ever had, and the first time I've ever picked up a pen, and I turned in this. I would give him the whole story to justify what I think I'm seeing. You know, we haven't seen shape-shifting yet, but I'm seeing this incestuous, and this opening title tells me they're cat people, and there's a cat on their lawn that's bothering them very much, and there's a trap for it. I think they're telling me one thing, but I'm giving King enough rope to hang himself so that he can prove me wrong at this point in the movie. It is when they go to Tanya's house, I find the flirtation cute, these two are charismatic, I find... Amick sexy as hell when she's biting that lower lip, and I'm just kind of going with the movie thus far. But I'm also kind of enjoying a subtle thing they've done. Tanya's parents are in this film, and 
oh my God, they're Ferris Bueller's parents. These are the two actors who were the parents in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I knew that the dad was. I didn't recognize them. I wouldn't recognize the mom. Yep, that is also Ferris's mom. What's the joke on that? He's doing Brady Bunch. He's doing Ferris. Is this what he thinks he understands about teenagers of the day? Well, Mick Garris did all the casting. Okay. So this is Mick Garris's doing. And apparently these two actors met on Ferris Bueller, got married in real life, and then played married people again here. They don't even have names. They're not really characters. No. I don't think they know exactly how to play it. I think they're playing it like they're in a 1950s drive-in movie, and they kind of are. They're sort of these silly people that know they're being a little bit overprotective when their virginal daughter, who doesn't go out on dates is suddenly saying, I want to go to the graveyard uh, with this new boy, and they give her a 5 p.m. curfew. That is so weird. Yeah, 5 p.m.? Yeah. She's kind of a photographer that's going to take pictures, but it's, it's all understood that everyone believes, basically, that little girl is growing up and maybe... Yeah, I don't think anyone, the parents are thinking sex, but they're definitely thinking that their child is going to make out and and how to handle that. And so... And strangely, Charles knows all about gravestone rubbing. He knows, you know, she tries to stump him and, oh, do you use powder or stick? And there's also something just slightly kind of phallic. I do rubbings too. Do you use powder or stick? I use a stick. Usually a number five. Don't you find that a little hard? <laughs> well, again, this is a character that sleeps with mothers. So I think that like he's not interested in Tanya. He's interested in taking the mom to the to the <laughs> gravesite. But anyway, before we get all of this, you might be wondering at this point, where are the deaths? And I am like thinking that it's long overdue when we finally have that teacher blowing back in, driving Charles's blue Trans Am off the road in his VW Bug. And saying, like, I've looked you all up, and I know that you're not from Paradise Falls, Ohio. Look, am I excited that we're going to get a severed hand? We're going to get some gore? Yes. I, I kind of been waiting for that in the Stephen King film. The problem is the logic. Like, this is just bad tactics. I, I don't know how Charles and Mary Brady have existed for so long when they're just, he's just out killing people at random. Like, there's other ways to deal with this. So I like that we're going to get a severed hand, but I that logic part of my brain, like, is not working with this film. I just don't like the gay panic scare of the fact that the teacher was coming on to him, and that's why he had to break off the hand now admittedly any unwanted sexual touching is that why yeah where are you getting that i never got that (laughs) no that's not my reading at all oh okay because the teacher says i don't know who you are but i know you're not who you say you are and charles goes are you trying to blackmail me because i have no money other than this car and the teacher says your generation is so mercenary charles money this money that well, money is not the only medium of exchange. And then he tweaks Charles' nipple. I don't think I even saw that occur. Yeah, I didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah, he reaches over and tweaks Charles' nipple. And so he's he's saying, fuck me to keep me quiet. Trust me on this. Earlier in the scene, there had been a jock with that lewd drawing, and he slapped his hand with a ruler. So I got the sense that he, like, the reason, he hurts Charles by slamming the car door on his hand, and from that, Charles decides, well, it's time to to show you who I really am. And so, you say that this is Stephen King experimenting. I would have believed you if you had told me this was Stephen King experimenting with his behind-the-scenes special effects work. Like, if Stephen <laughs> King was the one. Like, Stephen King actually doing it. 
Yes. Like creature design. Stand back, Stan Winston. I'm going to give a shot at this. I've seen a couple episodes of Thundercats. I know what I'm doing. Garrus was so proud of this, but I think he's wrong. Garrus said on the commentary, we were the second movie to use morphing. And we were filming before Terminator 2 came out. So, like, Terminator had morphing, and those people went straight to Sleepwalkers. That may be, but the the Michael Jackson video, Black or White, already had Michael turning into a Black Panther. So they weren't pioneering anything. And Star Trek VI had come out, like, six months before this. And I think there was even a car ad by this point. I remember by this point thinking, oh, morphing. You're showing us you have that again. I mean, it was already becoming a little bit passe a year after T2. I think it would have still been seen as pretty new, but it wasn't like I've never seen this before. When the Michael Jackson video aired and all the faces blended together, I remember literally just being like, wow, how did they do that? And of course, T2 all of those you know, liquid metal effects were mind-blowing. I don't remember feeling like this was mind-blowing, but I remember the the only thing I remember about this movie was the trailer and heavily featured in it was the fact that the kid's face like morphed into the cat. And that was a selling point. That was the reason to see the film. Yeah, I mean, that's their money shot right there. They spent the money on it. They're going to put it in the trailer trying to make you think there's a lot more of it in the movie. And mm-hmm. the creature design? Yeah, it's a little Beauty and the Beast, Ron Perlman, right? My <laughs> <laughs> Thundercats is where I kept going. No, Lion O never looked this bad. Well, Lion O has never had a live action equivalent. This feels like Lion O when we have $15 million and Stephen <laughs> King wants to do the makeup effects, personally. It's bad. So you're with me now, right? This is a really bad film. This is not a great makeup job. It's not terrible, but it's really uninventive and not scary. And then when he's chasing Ortho through the woods there, I find it really bad when he gets Ortho down and he's quite obviously just shaking his head back and forth in the actor's neck. And maybe it's the MPAA. Maybe there were a lot of shots of him ripping out neck bits and things. And all we could see was him looking like he was giving Ortho a hickey. But that was really bad to me, was this death. And he's eating the guy. Do sleepwalkers eat people? I thought they sucked life essences. I thought we were in life force. And now... I don't even know why they're called sleepwalkers. We don't see them sleepwalk. No, his mother's hungry. Why isn't he bringing back a leg or a hand for her? But all they eat is essence. So what's he eating? Again, these are problems solved by a screenwriter. One who maybe reads what they wrote from the night before when they stood up all night, you know, drinking energy drinks and coming out with whatever came out of their head. Like, I feel like this is forgivable when you don't know the craft of writing. I have no idea why we have so little answers to any questions you might ask. Right, and this is frustrating me. And then the next scene is absolutely stupid. If you've come to town for the sake of killing a virgin, do you really want to draw attention to yourself by speeding at 80 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour? I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't get this at all. So that some cop with blue blockers can chase you? That's the part you think is stupid? I'm having more of a problem with the fact that he's singing and playing around with Clovis the Cat. Like, that's, like, beyond the pale. Uh, That's the hero of the movie, Stuart. We gotta get to know Clovis. Oh, my God. I have no problem with Clovis the Cat. Again, I'm going back to Flash the Dog from Dukes of Hazzard. 
I'm just going to say cops in small towns can have their pets in their car and deputize them. I've never seen Dukes of Hazzard. I'll just put that out there. I've never seen an what? episode. Yeah. I that, don't. okay. No Seinfeld and no Dukes of Hazzard. No. I don't know where you're from, Stuart. But no, I just, what are you going for here? What is the point? What are you doing? I think what the point is, is to bring in some hair metal. Oh, I took it as score. Like, the, the drums sound like just a bad backing track. Like, I, I don't hear a whole lot of fills going on. It's just the same beat. They just got some studio musician to come in and shred on some guitar for a few minutes. Okay, but it's definitely hair metal style of guitar work. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I I just, I don't think you could get this on an album. And it was just coming after an extreme song. They had a pop song, It's a Monster. Did you order that music video from the box, Arnie? (laughs) No, I did not. (laughs) But anyway, that was their hit single. I didn't even know Extreme was in this until I looked at the soundtrack after watching this movie this time. I didn't figure they could afford Enya or Extreme on their budget. They spent it all on the morph. But no, yeah, they had Extreme in here not too long after Bill and Ted. But yeah, this whole car chase. And then here's our second cameo. Charles goes past a school bus. There's some little kids there and a crossing guard, and we're made to think Charles aimed for and ran over a little girl. Now, I want to talk about that a little more in a second. She's saved by the crossing guard. Well, the crossing guard isn't exactly a star, but he is the film's stunt coordinator. And Mick Garris went on and on because he said, I knew all of our stunts would go well because I trusted this guy. He was John Landis' stunt coordinator. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is an exact quote from the commentary. I trusted him because he was John Landis's stunt coordinator. If people don't know what that means, Google Twilight Zone the movie. I'll leave it at that. He had to have been making a cruel joke, right? Like, everyone knows what John Landis did and the stunt that went wrong. Like, that... I don't think McGarris was playing on that level. Wow. Well, I mean, I would hope not, because that's such an insensitive, horrible thing to say. I would rather believe that he was stupid and thought that he was working with professionals who hadn't beheaded children. But okay, whatever. The other thing is... They play it like the child was run down, and this is coming a couple years after Pet Cemetery. I actually thought, watching it this time, he ran over the little girl, and I'm like, wait a second. Are my loyalties supposed to be with him? Because if he intentionally mowed down a little girl, it's gone. Any possible empathy I could have for this character is gone. I mean, he didn't, but he was aiming for her, and this cop here... Deputy Simpson says he was aiming for him. It looks that way to me. Yeah. That is the problem is, is Charles this tragic character you're supposed to feel for? Because he goes after Fallows, takes off his hand, goes after this kid. Like, he doesn't feel regretful for having to take these virgins' life, that he revels in it. But we're supposed to get from this that he feels different about Tanya, that he's conflicted with Tanya. We get these conversations with his mother where the mother can tell he's conflicted. And this actor isn't selling me conflict. The script isn't selling me conflict. But yet I'm seeing in words that I'm supposed to think he might choose Tanya over mother. That was the weird thing. I watched the trailer before I watched this, and I got the sense, oh, Charles is going to be this tragic character. He's he's being made to do things against his will because he's some weird cat person. That's all I could, They showed that morph scene. And then I watched this film. I'm like, no, he's just a straight-up bad guy. Like, there's nothing redeemable about him. It, it's such a weird film. Like, But he's not so cool that I want to go along. You know, it's not like Tarantino where you want to be one of the gangsters. 
Yeah, you would definitely write this so that Charles was somebody that the audience was rooting for and felt sorry for, that he had to kill for his mother. He would make the mother, kind of like Carrie, be the oppressive force, and you'd want to see this bullied teenager get out from under her using superpowers. But he seems perfectly content to live centuries or more making out with his mom, and I didn't think, I didn't get the sense that Tanya was anything for him, other than the new meal. Yeah, it's the cutting the tea into his arm when, he, you know, he doesn't do that for anybody else that we know of. There's no scars of other letters. Well, that's the first moment we're meeting him. I mean, again, establishing things, like... Yeah, he barely knows her. You have to be a real amateur to put out characters that are this thin, that have nothing to them in this way. And well, I mean, again, we're never going to get answers about so much about the mythology, the characters, all of it. What was motivating anyone? Like stunningly inept writing. I'm really dumbfounded during this car chase when he makes the car invisible. He just decides the chase is over, I guess. And this cop is the worst cop because... I now know that even in the 90s, they had that little maneuver where they hit your back bumper to spin you out if you're going at crazy speed. The pit maneuver. He could also, you know, call in people to set up a spike strip or something. This cop is going to do a 90 mile an hour chase. This is Travis, Indiana. I mean, I don't know if they have spike strips there. But he does this 90 mile an hour chase and finally... Charles is like, okay, that's enough. I'm just going to turn invisible. Also, this cop, I'm screaming at the screen, radio in the license plate number. <laughs> he never even takes a look at the license. Maybe Clovis wrote it down. How do they have a license? I mean, are they licensed? It begs so many questions. Well, at the very least, maybe they killed somebody and stole their car. There's a license plate on the car. <laughs> I mean, and it seems like such a small town, like someone has this, what is this, a blue Mustang? Like, it would stand out. You would know who they were, even if they were new into town. Right. So aggravated that I don't, I don't want to belabor these why questions, because the answer is Stephen King didn't bother, and nobody else felt they had the right to fill in the blank. Stephen King wouldn't let them fill in the blank. He veto those script updates. Yeah, it's shameful. Like, and again, I'm just thinking as Stephen King, man of sobriety, has a couple years, got his two years sober chip here. Like, would you not want to think a little bit harder about what you're putting out here and the characters and their motivation? Like a stunningly undiagnosed presentation of cat vampires. Well, you know, some of his short stories are truly bad. He's written some truly god-awful short stories. And for him, I think a screenplay is a short story. I only have 90 pages? That's what I submit to Playboy. So... I think maybe he's too close to it or he thinks that actors and things will sell it or that there will be effect scenes that didn't happen. I'm not sure. But yeah, at this point, when the car turns invisible and changes into a different car, I'm like, who are the sleepwalkers? What are the limits to their powers? I didn't know it was a cloaked car. I'm like, did he just manifest a different vehicle out of nowhere? What the hell is going on? Oh, let's see another mother-son sex scene instead of explaining anything. Right. I think we're finally getting to see them. This is the first time I get a mirror shot, right? Like, we see them making out in the bed, and then it pans over, and there's a full-body mirror, and they look like hairless cats. Yes. They're cats that are really scrawny and no fur, and... Sphinx cats, yeah. 
they are not sexy. No. You know, if you wanted to go vampire and seduction. There's no Taylor Swift in Cats 2019. <laughs> no, that was a sexy cat. <laughs> no, this is not. And meanwhile, we're going to get a subplot with this cop going back because he pulled up next to Charles and Clovis stared at Charles and Charles shapeshifted through like four faces, including a shit you not, my demon lover. Scott Valentine's demon from my demon lover was one of those faces. The reason why he was a small boy in another one. So I take it to mean he was regressing is what I thought. Like the, which at this point, if you can't get a handle on like house cats, why are you in America? Like you need to go to somewhere really cold. Yeah, it is crazy how many cats are just hanging outside their house. At the end, we see like a whole troop of cats running towards them. Yeah, the cats are drawn to them. Like they have this conversation. Can we be the last of our tribe? And the mother's like, no, we're not the last. But wherever they go, cats follow and a cat scratch can kill them. These do not seem like very tough monsters. They are fated for extinction. They definitely are going to get wiped out. And yeah, the question is, will they take Tanya with them uh, before they go? That's what we're to care about, is that she's got her picnic date in the cemetery. That's where Charles has decided he's going to take her purple virginity. To do this, all he's got to do is kill her, right? I'm guessing he has to take the life essence while she's alive. Okay. Yeah, I think he even states that he's not going to kill her before he finishes his meal. But he's just got to hold her down and suck the purple light out of her. Like, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard, especially someone that's lived hundreds of years doing this. He also has a personality change on a dime because he's, like, sweet and playful getting out there. And then the moment he starts feeding on her... Why don't you think of yourself as lunch? Yeah, I thought we understood each other, Tanya. Isn't this the excitement we were talking about? It doesn't have to hurt. Here's Johnny. And then she hits him with a camera, runs out. There's that cop standing there. He shoves a pencil in the cop's ear. Cop kebab. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? Fuck. (laughs) I mean, and you know what McGarris said on the commentary? You know, we decided to cut out the jokes. We didn't want him to be too Freddy. I'm like, what did you cut if this is what you left? (laughs) Yeah, cop kebab. I'm sad that Deputy Simpson dies because truthfully, Dan Martin and Clovis are the only two characters on the screen giving anything. I love this cop and his blue blockers and his gray cat. I'm like, these are the characters I want, and the deputy is killed instantly. Now all I have left is Clovis. I think I know what you mean. They're terrible characters, but at the same time, there's sort of a Toontz the driving cat kind of comedy that comes <laughs> with seeing them on screen that at least emulates a joy that an audience might feel, whereas otherwise... Everyone else here is really dull and cookie cutter and without dimension, without anything distinguishable. Like, yeah, here's Shelly from Twin Peaks. What's her thing? What do we know about her? What did she want? Nothing. Like, there's just nothing to these characters. What also pisses me off is the pacing of this, because Charles cats out at about 48 minutes into the movie. You know, we've gone through 48 minutes and the movie's been pretty static. At the 30 minute mark, we'd want something to happen. That's when the car chase happens and the car chase leads to nothing. And so 48 minutes, he cats out. All right, we finally have a bad guy. We're in a horror slasher movie. 
the bad guy has come out. He's killed the mean teacher. He's killed a cop. All right. The movie's going to get started. Wait, no. The cat jumped on his face and now he's dying. That is so crazy. Yeah. I mean, and anytime you have a character like being mauled by a house cat, that's Jokesville. I mean, like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, like a a dummy cat Mm -hmm. and he's just like moving it around on his face. So obvious. It is hysterically bad. I'm going to compliment Stephen King, the special effects artist. That's the first time he's rigged a cat puppet. So good job, Stevie. (laughs) He is here. I don't, I mean, I'm making that part up but he is like doing his cameo as the cemetery owner later oh geez yeah yeah after charles drives away we have a slew of cameos did you catch them all well uh, stephen king is wandering around the crime scene i saw clyde barker and i saw mick garris was there others no i don't know what mick garris looks like but i saw clyde barker the first person King talks to is Toby Hooper. Oh. He says, don't talk to me. I'm busy. I thought that was Mick Garris, but you're right. That is Toby Hooper. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. <laughs> then he goes over and talks to Clive Barker. And Clive Barker says, in an obvious British accent, I know you said I'm the future of horror, so that's why I'm here. Wait, no. He says, don't talk to me. Talk to the sheriff. Mm-hmm. It's such a pointless scene unless you just want to string these cameos together. It serves no purpose. Which is exactly what they wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then here's the minorest of cameos. There's this actor, Stuart Charno, who's like the crime scene photographer here. Okay. He was... In Friday the 13th Part 2, as the guy who went to the bar and lived, if you remember that character. Yeah, I I do. Well, why does he need a cameo? I feel like this is a job for him. He was in Christine, and he was in Freddy's Nightmares. So this guy has been a character actor in the 80s and bounced around. So here he is in Sleepwalkers. You might have misdiagnosed this. Having Clyde Barker on screen is winking at the audience. This guy might just have been like who they could get. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He just needed work. Yeah, I don't don't know that they were were doing anything postmodern and ironic by highlighting the Friday the 13th 2 guy, (laughs) but maybe. You know, Mick Garris goes deep, so I kind of thought it was. Does he? I I would like for him to go deeper. I mean, deep in his horror cameo bit, not in his (laughs) scripting, acting, directing. Any of that. Like, the most stunning thing of all is, like, no sooner has she been attacked and realizes they're cat people, then they pretty much are just trying to grab her and and dance with her. They drag it out. First of all, Ron Perlman has to show up. The state cops are coming to fight with the local cops. Yeah, for some reason, we got more cops here. Yeah, Ron Perlman was a surprise because, at this point, he's the star of Beauty of the Beast, the Linda (laughs) Hamilton, like romantic show and like considered a sex symbol at this point i thought like oh well something's going to happen here he's going to take over and it's going to be him versus the cat people i think he's just doing extra work like he just one of the cops that gets killed you know he was also just a big stunt guy which makes me know how big that sheriff was because the sheriff is taller than Ron Perlman, and Ron Perlman is fucking tall. But, I mean, Ron Perlman had been around. He's in our book for Name of the Rose. He was a pretty big character in there. I don't remember him being in that movie. Yeah, that movie's so dark, though, I might have just Yeah, there was a lot of people in monk's robes. That's what I remember that. I, I, all I'm saying is, to me now, when I see Ron Perlman showing up on screen, I think that we're going to see a story taken a new direction. And in fact, he's just one of the cops that goes to the Brady house and tries to find the culprits. And because they can go dim, they can't see the cats. 
Meanwhile, for reasons, Tanya is like, I got photos of him in my camera. Go to the photo lab so you can see that he's a monster. And we get more cameos. John Landis and Joe Dante are the photo lab guys. All of this feels so indulgent. Like, it's not surprising that they're like, oh, looky. It's like, it does feel like this. It feels like a drunken night, frankly, but it feels like all the horror guys got together, laughed up a script, did it like on a case of beer, and then woke up and went, wait, what do we do? And it's out on on movie screens? For some reason, Mick Garish just likes to hire John Landis as an actor. Remember he was in Psycho 4 also? And I'm like, why? I don't. He was the radio station manager. Oh, okay. If you say so. I don't know why I remember it so well, but... Mm. Yeah, we get all of this, but it is disappointing that Charles is dying now. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, one cat. One cat attack. And he is now feeble, and, like, the mom has to be doing all of the stuff here at the end. Is this when he's sleepwalking? Because I'm still looking for the sleepwalkers part. Jacob, they never walk when asleep. Never. They're just called sleepwalkers. Okay, I thought maybe he was, like, almost dead, and so when he has Tanya dance with him, like, it, it does look like he's kind of just rising like a zombie corpse or something at first, and that's reviving him for some reason. He never sleepwalks. Why is this called sleepwalkers, then? Yeah, well, the Tommyknockers never showed up in Tommyknockers. They were space aliens, so, like... Yeah, but they had some poem to blame those aliens on. I don't even know where sleepwalkers comes up in this. I think that King falls in love with a connotation. He was listening to that song. He re- recognized that Santo and Johnny had created a mood. He felt like it would be a good theme song for some kind of characters. And unfortunately, he landed that song on this premise. It deserved better, frankly. I wish I was seeing a different take on what a sleepwalker monster could be. And so Tanya's back at her house with one of the deputies and her parents and we get like this nightmare on elm street scene where she's taking a bubble bath and nothing comes of it (laughs) there's like scenes for no reasons it is like they are doing freddy i mean you keep calling it out and it's worth underlying i never thought of stephen king as someone that was a fan of or wanted to emulate the trends of a slasher movie like, is he on record liking that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. He calls out several of them that he likes. He, you know, he's a horror movie fan and he likes schlock as well as art house. He, you know, he may not always have the greatest of taste. Kubrick's The Shining isn't his favorite, but he does. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. Freddy Krueger himself almost showed up in the 2017 movie It. There was going to be a Robert Englund cameo is Pennywise. So, you know, Pennywise is kind of Freddy Krueger-ish. He would want to emulate and make his version that maybe the idea behind this was it was a way of jumping on the bandwagon with what the kids like. Again, I, and I don't know why, but I always thought that, that Stephen King disparaged that kind of stuff that felt like the stuff that he wrote and tried to tap into had a more timeless quality than the youth horror movies of the 1980s. I just didn't know. I didn't know that he would want to make that movie, but it helps me understand why this movie is turning out to be like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 7. Yeah, I'm, I just Googled it. He wrote an Entertainment Weekly article about how excited he was to see Freddy versus Jason because he's seen all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, all the Halloween movies, 
almost all of the Friday the 13th movies. And he had a button in the 80s he wore that said Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis would make a good presidential ticket. Okay. Well, I mean, Halloween is one thing, but I guess I, guess I didn't know he liked this. And I didn't know he would go for it. And boy, is he not. I mean, again, he's making Wes Craven look good. He is. But Wes Craven wrote and directed. McGarris is not doing King any favors here. This deputy eating his corn, eating the pie, just so interested in the food. This Honestly, just the set decoration here. This horrible wallpaper is distracting me in this kitchen. When Alice Krieg shows up and says she's Charles's mother... And the father doesn't immediately slam the door and call the cop to come. Yeah, the man that just sexually assaulted my daughter. And he looks like he's... Yeah. I think he's. we're supposed to think that he's hypnotized by her beauty. Maybe. What? I never got that. Well, this is Alice Krieg. She was the Borg queen. So I could see that. She does have an allure in this film. Yeah, I think they were trying to say that she seduced him momentarily. I don't know. I'm tired of trying to fill in the blanks. I don't know why anything is happening. That's the problem with this movie. This movie's a Rorschach blot because you can only see what you see in this movie. And what I'm discussing is, here's what I saw in this movie and what I think they were going for. Do you guys see the same thing in the coffee stain? Because it's confusing. Yeah, I just, it's, what were they going for? The only thing I can land on now that we've had this discussion is that he was trying to have a really low-grade slasher series that he could presumably franchise and sequelize and keep going with because there's a lot that's unexplained here and i presume that he would want to eventually tell us why these cat people need to drink virgin purple essence in order to keep road tripping and they don't even make it very clear but i'm taking it from this movie and where the purple light is used that only the male can feed on the virgin essence Or they're just homophobes. They won't, you know, lesbian out with a virgin woman. Yeah, mother and son can bang each other, but we wouldn't want to have any same-sex couplings. And 1992, girl on girl. I mean, keep in mind, Basic Instinct had come out. I think it could have gone there, but I think what we saw with that purple light in the bedroom is the male gets it from the virgin, and then the male gives it to the female sleepwalkers through sex. This is stupid then. How does this sleepwalker population, I guess that's why mm-hmm. there's only two of them now, because that makes no evolutionary sense that my offspring's got to go and steal the essence from a virginal woman and then ha- commit incest, which always makes the best babies, right? Like incest babies, super strong, never problems there. Like th- this is awful. Unlike a vampire, which every time they bite someone on the neck, they make a new one. I don't know how... They can't mate with other cats. What hope is there for them? Cats hate them. Like, how did they get past? Were they around with saber-toothed tigers? Because they would have mauled them. You know what I'm thinking of here? You know what this is? It just hit me. This is the true knot from Dr. Sleep. Remember the true knot and how they were all these great psychics and then, like, one person invades and they're all dead? Mm. Remember that? And how they were like all had the cancer because they fed on the sick boy. And so they were all dying and they were desperate. I think that these sleepwalkers are the first draft of what King would write with Rose the Hat 
in Doctor Sleep. <laughs> what does it mean when you're the first draft of an already bad idea? Yeah, his worst novel. So she kills Tanya's dad. The mother is thrown through a window but seen alive. We actually have a cop killed with an ear of corn in the back of it. Yes! yes. Oh, it's so bad. Stephen King wrote that. I want people to know that wasn't something they remembered from <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street 5 or something. It's not from Troll 2. It's not from a Children of the Corn movie. <laughs> yes. Stephen King wrote that line, said, no vegetables, no dessert. Those are the rules. That is a line that Stephen King wrote. And he ate the corn first. He ate his vegetables. What's the dessert that was even on the table? He ate some pie. Oh, that's right. And having someone stabbed with a corn cob. And that was put out from a master of horror. The mother bites off three of Ron Perlman's fingers, breaks his arm and knocks him out with his own elbow and takes Tanya back to Charles, who Tanya thinks is dead. I think he's dead. The mother now has telekinesis. We have never seen them have telekinesis before, but she can telekinetically turn on the music to play that song, Sleepwalk, and then telekinetically have her son dance with Tanya. Boy, and you thought your prom was like embarrassing. Like this is everyone's like worst prom date ever. Like I feel better about junior high now that I've seen like someone's mom making a cat waltz with their child. Yeah, Charles isn't magically getting better, like healing from these scars. He's like still missing an eye, just mm -hmm. blood pumping out of his face while he's dancing with Tanya here. But he is getting better because at some point he comes back to life and starts to feed off of her. So so somehow but he's never healed no but i think if he could have fed enough that would have happened he would have healed because he starts to heal but then she pokes him in the other eye she poked him in one eye earlier to fight him off and he didn't care now she pokes him in the other eye and kills him because I guess he was already wounded by Clovis, who is breaking into the house. Clovis. Clovis straight up jumps through a window. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, he breaks a window to get in the house to save Tanya. Yeah, I, I love it. Like, Mary's got to drive through the house because that yard is full of cats, so they can't get out of the car. They got to drive through. We see a cat, like, run through the hole she makes in the house. I don't know why more cats didn't run through there. She does snap that cat's neck, so maybe they're like, we're going to stay away. But I do love Clovis, like, just barreling in through, like, the upper story window. And then Clovis is leading a march. The cats are like, we're yes. with you, Clovis. <laughs> <laughs> and so all these fake cats are on her back. It is looking really funny all the the stuffed cats as she's writhing around and embarrassing yeah uh, uh, stunning <laughs> like i'm just uh, where i don't have words for what i'm watching i can't believe i can't believe they released this movie like i would <laughs> like stephen king owns the rights like i would have paid whatever the studio you could to like get the negative and hide this no, no, no. Stephen King sold the rights to Columbia, but he got creative control. Yeah, I would want this so hidden. I want it erased like this is something you scrub from your resume. You make sure no one ever knows. I bet that would have happened, too, if it weren't for Twin Peaks. If Matchin Amick hadn't become a pretty big star because she was in Twin Peaks... I bet this would have not gotten the release it did. Yeah. Well, again, $30 million at the box office. A lot of people saw it. You had a shirt. 
I didn't buy the shirt. I was, I was, the shirt found me like Clovis. <laughs> it tracked me down. How, how much do they spend on these sleepwalker costumes that they look like they maybe, uh, they were some old sleeve stack costumes that they added some paint to? Mm hmm. Sid and Marty Croft for sure. It definitely has that. Yes. <laughs> Funny enough, they had different sleepwalker costumes and they weren't able to get them to work. And so they ended up going with these costumes. Like, were they like robots? It's just a mask and, and a suit you put on. What didn't work? Well, these were more complex designs. They did end up using them. They were the Tommy Knockers in Tommy Knockers. Oh, no. Mm. That's that's the better design? Mm. That's the better design than this latex, hairless, pimply cat. So... The mother chases Tanya out. Tanya's car won't start for because reasons. She can't get the key in for a while, and the car just won't start. But it doesn't even matter because cats are just killing this woman. Yeah, it's a great final image. It's exactly how <laughs> I will remember this film, as to seeing this poor woman try and pretend she's been defeated by uh, 30 cats. I mean, they do set her on fire. Yeah. But then they do like a superimposed kind of thing with her on the hood. Yeah, she takes human form again, but she's still got flames around her. It's really bad looking. It's the worst effect in a movie that isn't great (laughs) with effects. But she's like, you killed my son, my only son. Never mind that I'm on fire. And (laughs) then she dies. And then it's just her and Clovis. Like, then, like, this is the TV series, right? I mean, literally, she says it's just you and me, Clovis. Yeah, so driving away, like, like TV series, right? We could we could <laughs> do this for years, right? And Enya. What an odd choice for end credits, Enya. Eh, early 90s Enya was everywhere. But that's the end of the movie. It's like, no wrapping up, no, hey, mom, I'm okay. Just, it's you and me, Clovis, and Clovis looks pissed. Well, the mom, her parents are dead. Like, who knows what's going to happen to Tanya? The mother survived. Oh, she survived that throw through the window? Yeah, we see her with a cop when Mary is biting off Ron Perlman's fingers. She survived the throw. Okay, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) But it just fades to black. Enya plays, and I'm in a theater stunned. (laughs) What? the hell what is this so jacob stewart what is sleepwalkers jacob oh you're, you're not gonna wonder if we, we're gonna recommend this you just want to know what this is yes i don't know <laughs> i don't know what this is because here's the thing it could have gone two ways and then, like i said at the beginning these lonely supernatural creatures that society doesn't understand they these taboos they participate in You could do some real artsy-fartsy, gothic, horror-type story with that. Or you could do just some, like, really campy cat vampire film that's real schlocky and, you know, severed hands and, I I guess, corn cobs through people's chest, which this film tries to do both. And that's that's my problem. It, It can't commit to one thing. And it look, if this was just a schlocky B-horror film about cat vampires and, you know, had a lot of fun gore effects, I would have totally been down for it. But I give this a not recommend alone because it wastes cop kebab. Like, that is a line you do not use lightly in your film. You need to make that pay off. And they do not earn 
the moment to say cop kebab in this film. It just, it's not that kind of movie. Maybe it could have gone that direction. I would have liked it more if it would have committed to that. Like, I, I like the bizarreness of it, but it's just so incomprehensible. And there's no vision that I see behind this, like some driving force. So many questions. When, when, what's the net? Well, I guess we don't have conventions going on right now, or else I could maybe get in line to ask Stephen King about this, because I need to know. I still don't know why you would write this the, the, the way it did. It is a, a bizarre film. I did toy with the brown arrow because it is shocking and, and there's some awful things in it, but it's also like there's long periods. Again, 89 minute film and there's long periods where I'm just bored, waiting for a hand to get cut off, waiting for something to happen. But, uh, you know, if you like watching cats just run around in yards and avoid beer traps, there, there, there's something for you. But yeah, not recommend. Stewart. Yeah, I mean, it's telling that King didn't think it was worthy enough to actually release a novel. I mean, all his ideas end up getting published. He would want to monetize this. But yeah, I think it's an acknowledgement of how threadbare the story really is that there's no literary companion. I don't know what he was thinking. Again, I'm only half kidding when I'm saying maybe he wanted to dabble in special effects. Maybe he wanted to date the waitress from Twin Peaks. Maybe he had other things going, like a dare or a bet, a drunken joke around with his other horror cred friends. I don't know, but like this doesn't even work as a like a creep show installment. Like the lesser creep show efforts at least have simple ironies. Like we know who we're rooting for. We know that the point is some kind of revenge. I don't know who I'm supposed to like. I don't know who I'm supposed to care to see make it. I don't know what my role is here. I look at a film like this and it feels horrendously misguided. It's a you bowl film. Like the, the stunner is I can now, having lived through a dozen Uva Bowl films, this feels like another one. The what saves it from being that, believe it or not, is Mick Garris's direction. Because Mick Garris moves the camera and has more competence in the technical department, this film doesn't feel as shabby. The difference is they had a dolly for this film. Yeah, seriously. I'll take your word for it because I'm not watching all those Name of the Kings and Booberella or whatever you guys talked about. Those sounded awful. Yeah, story-wise, it's as bad as any of those ever were. But I at least can see the assemblance of shots and know where action is happening and what's supposed to be happening. But I don't know why... The, a man that is, at this point, at the height of his reputation for being a, a storyteller of horror fiction, would dare like risk tarnishing with with something so stupid. I mean, this is not the worst Stephen King movie by a long mile, but it is maybe the most glaring spotlight on his flaws as a writer. I just can't believe that he would tell an original story and then have nothing to say. I just... Yeah, this isn't a matter of a poor adaptation. Mm -mm. This is all on King. It's all on him. Yeah, I don't blame McGarris. I don't blame these actors. I don't blame anyone. This is Stephen King's failure. And he's... You're right, Arnie. He's done it before. Maximum Overdrive. He proved he wasn't a director. But he never proved he wasn't a writer. And I gotta ask at this point, are you still a fan, (laughs) Arnie? Like, do you like this guy? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, you can be a fan of a musician and not like every song. You can be a discerning fan. I can be a Star Wars fan and realize those sequels aren't exactly the bee's knees. 
So, yeah, I'm a King fan, but not everything King touches is gold. He's not King Midas. Is most things good at this point? Are you feeling like this deep into the retrospective that you are watching someone who has created iconic, wonderful stories and characters? On the page, yeah. We're watching his movies. We knew that was shit. There's a few highlights, but come on. By partnering with Dino and then some of these other low-rent productions and selling away his rights to Children of the Corn so that we have endless sequels of them. Yeah, his cinematic adaptations were always a, a fool's errand of brown arrows and red arrows. And that's where I'm at with Sleepwalkers, is truthfully, this movie ha- left me so aghast that I had to wonder if a brown arrow was on the table for it. I mean, it's so inept. I almost think you have to see this. I mean, just the poor pacing, the lame effects, the fact that you will walk out of this going, what's a sleepwalker? (laughs) After 90 minutes of a movie that has a definition of sleepwalkers. (laughs) So angry. (laughs) Yeah, it is so inept. That, yes, coming from two, quote, masters of horror. Mick Garris does not get that title. Stop. Yeah. Mick Garris was given that name as part of the Masters of Horror TV series. No, no. Yes. We know what he did to get that title. Well, Stephen King written. It's just a debacle. And no, it's not the worst King film because... I mean, again, I'm enraptured by this awfulness as compared to just annoyed by it like some of those corn films. I mean, this is a marvelous failure in every regard. This is like a class of what not to do ever in any of it. It's bad. And it's like brown, red, brown, red. I'm like morphing brown, red, brown, red. Can you do a purple arrow? (laughs) red gonna red gonna just the cats are too well that's brown arrow the cats are so dumb (laughs) yeah i'm gonna red arrow it it's just not quite funny enough the first half it takes a while to get to the really stupid it's once he cats out that the movie's truly off the rails and like off the rails in a you mean one cat killed him he's no longer the bad guy kind of way i mean it is total blue balls this entire movie is blue balls except for charles who gets off with his mother it's like damn this movie is just a car wreck yeah (laughs) i almost think you have to see it but i in the end think stay away it's breezy i think it helps the fact that this thing's real short it's under 90 minutes you know it's not one of those miniseries god help us if this thing went on for three or four hours i don't know how it could (laughs) yeah well we've seen that maybe we'd get an explanation of something yeah i mean i think there's a lot that they could have gotten into and god knows stephen king doesn't have a problem drawing stories out even his best ones feel over long at this point I'm going to put it right there with Maximum Overdrive, Tommy Knocker's Graveyard Shift. It's on the lower end of the spectrum, but not at the very bottom. It's really bad, and I don't know, maybe the Sleepwalker is king. It really just feels like he barely paid attention to this. Like, it came out of him without him being cognizant or aware of what he was doing. And that's strange, because producer, screenwriter... You just would think that he would want to protect himself. Cameo actor, he was on the set. Yeah, right. But no, instead, this movie made $30 million and a lifelong friend with McGarris. I mean, he didn't look at Sleepwalkers and was like, man, that guy fucked up my script. First of all, he said B-plus on adaptation. And second, he's like, 
oh, we're going to do the stand? Let's bring in McGarris. Yeah. It's stunning the guy got more King to adapt because I would think that this, well, again, 30 million is a hit. As much as I want to characterize this as a failure, you, Arnie, you keep saying debacle. Debacles don't make money. And this thing, yeah, I think that's why Garrus got the pass that he did. Well, there was talk of a sequel. Stephen King talked about a sequel. I bet you he has a script. Again, I, I would think that there would be eight of these by this point. I would be really thinking that like, with that direct-to-video market that blew up in the 90s, they would have one out every year. According to McGarris, after this movie opened at number one, Tabitha King, Stephen King's wife, wrote a treatment for a sequel to Sleepwalkers. And Garris never read it, so he says, I'm not sure how, but somehow it involved a women's basketball team. Were they all fucking their sons? King was really excited that Tabby came up with this, but it was a sequel that nobody at the studio gave a shit about. You know, they liked the money that Sleepwalkers made, but it was not a prestige release by any means, so the studio never even thought about Sleepwalkers after. Mm-hmm. I would definitely think they'd crank out sequels, but theaters, if the idea was that they that we're going to get another $15 million to put it up on the big screen again, oh, no, no. This is quite obviously hanging out with dangerous toys. Like, this is straight to the Charles Band world. Well, by 1992 also... I think King had learned a thing or two about selling sequel rights, and he didn't do that so much. Notice that, like, we don't have Misery 2 out there and all of that. He learned after the early 80s stuff to hold sequel rights to himself. So if the studio wanted to cheapy direct-to-video it, I bet King vetoed. But again, nobody talks about this. Mick Garris said nobody at the studio talked about it. $30 million is profit, but the studio didn't want to do this again. King doesn't talk about it. There, I mean, I've looked through every King biography. You guys know I have a library, right? I have seven King biographies and two King autobiographies, a bunch of magazines and Fangoria's. I can't find King talking about this very much. Yeah, well, I, it's nothing to be proud of. It is definitely something. You need to explain it to me because I watched it. But yeah, I, I would know how you defend it. It definitely feels like one of his biggest gaffes as a quality control. And we have another take of The Stand that's wrapping up this Friday, but we're going to hold off a week. We're, it's a big 10-hour event, and we're going to need some time to process this new CBS miniseries of The Stand. So in between, I figure, you know what, with Valentine's Day this weekend, guys are getting a little kinky out there. You got some ideas. Maybe we should do the next Fifty book. Shades of Grey? <laughs> yeah, I think that is kind of what this is. Stephen King's take on of a horror sex thriller, Gerald's Game. It's it's actually, of all the books I haven't read of Stephen King, it's the one I've been the most intrigued about. Stuart's got a kinky side. Well, it's a woman handcuffed in a bed, and her lover is dead, and she's got to get out. No, it sounds like a great premise, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, kind of Cujo, right? Like, it's a minimalist thing. How's she going to get away? But maybe there's a monster. I don't know. We'll find out. And there's only 332 pages. Hey! Oh, it's a short story. There's something to be said about that. Okay, yeah, it's a short story. <laughs> but I am wondering. I read that book when it was new. I'm wondering how the hell you film it. So we will be looking at that next week. 
And then we'll get to the new stand. And if you're eager to have more really bad movies, uh, I also invite you to be a patron this month. This Friday, we have one of my very favorite as sort of a, a button to put on the Satanic Panic, Rosemary's Baby, Omen kind of films that were so popular in the 70s. I've dug up a little chestnut from 1978 that I absolutely love called The Manitou. I don't know. This movie's crazy. It's everything. It's Star Wars. It's Dancing with Wolves. You'll just have to join us on Friday if you can. Yes, and that is the 50th bonus show you get by being a $10 a month patron at now playing patron.com. So many reviews exclusive only to patrons. Willow, The Last Starfighter, The Warriors. What are, what are some good ones? <laughs> Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove. There's 50 movies. Closer was our Valentine's Day movie last year. It's only $10 a month, 50 podcasts available now, plus a new one available every single month. So head to nowplayingpatron.com, sign up. It would greatly help out our show. And thank you to all of our current patrons. I can't say thank you enough. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now... I gotta go. I've gotta give the popcorn girl a ride home. All right. Any thoughts on Mr. Brady's sleepwalkers? I liked it. You liked it? It was different. I thought it was very sad. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. What do you think happened? I don't know, but somebody sure doesn't like cats. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. You always get them sooner or later. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Go ahead. You mean free? In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. Get every man he has! In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and Robocop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Going anywhere tonight? To the movies, maybe. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Starving, Charles. You have to get it for me. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, sweets to the sweet, I always say. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I need you. I need you to live. 
Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. All by my lonesome. Associate produced by Jason. I think I can handle this one all by myself. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Really, don't you find that a little hard? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Listen to me! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. When exactly did I lose your trust? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Leave that part out when you're talking to the county prosecutor, okay? All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Those are the rules. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I don't need this action. Okay, don't talk to me. Talk to the sheriff. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Time of happiness, too brief to be anything but golden, had run out. Starring Brian Krause, Machen at Machen Amick. Yep, that's how you pronounce it. Machen Amick. <laughs> well, if an A is 92 to 100% and a B is 84 to 91, remember when grade school, like that was the grades? You didn't just go by tens? <laughs> a B was. No, I don't remember that. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was totally my life, like up until college, was a B was 84 to 91. <laughs> And an That's A a was 92 to 100. <laughs> and everything below a 60 was an F. <laughs> played by... Played by... Mage, played by Macon Amick. Played by Macon... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not right. <laughs> Amick. Macon Amick. <laughs> played by Maiden Amick. Played by Maiden Amick. There we go. Maiden Amick. Maiden. Macon, isn't it? Played by Macon Amick. <laughs> For Madeshin, for made for Madeshin Amic, for Madeshin Am- That okay. No Seinfeld and no Dukes of Hazard. No, I don't know where you're from, Stuart. No, I just no interest in it, and I'm not going to do the movie either. I don't care how much people <laughs> donate for it. I don't want to do those. Oh, I've never if seen they them. Donate, you're doing Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> well, other people can do that. People that like that series, but no, I just. Here's our first cameo. Second. Charles we had Mark goes Hamill. past a school yeah. bus. Oh, yeah. Here's our second cameo. Mark Hamill goes past a school bus. Mark Hamill. No, Mark Hamill. <laughs> he was the first. <laughs> Here's our second cameo.